This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife in another HPD episode. Um, today, we're extremely excited to discuss a recent article published in JAMA Surgery in July 2021 titled Progression versus Stability of Branch Duct Introductal Papillary Mucinous Neoplasms After Observation and Surgery. We're thrilled to bring you the first author of the paper, Dr. Giovanni Marchegiani of the Pancreas Institute in Verona, Italy, for an interview later in the episode. Our most recent clinical challenges in surgery episode was about IPMNs. So if you haven't listened to that episode first, we'd highly recommend that you do that first as a review. Otherwise, let's dive into an overview of the article before our interview. Beth, do you want to take us through the overall objectives and the methods of the study? Yeah, absolutely, Lexi. So the overall goal of the study is to balance two fundamental challenges of studying IPMNs. The first would be without considering the overall denominator of IPMNs and considering only those who undergo resection, we're likely overestimating the risk of regression to malignant disease. The second is that by expanding the study pool to those who do not have a pathologically confirmed IPMN, we likely underestimate the risk of malignant neoplasms. So this study is a multi-center retrospective study of centers in Italy, Korea, Singapore, and the U.S., that specifically assessed what dynamic variables are associated with malignant progression in pathologically proven IPMNs under at least a year of initial surveillance. So all patients undergoing surgery for a branch duct IPMN from January 1st, 2000 to December 31st, 2019, with an initial 12-month surveillance period were considered for inclusion. Indications for surgery were based in the initial part of the study on no guidelines, However, from 2006, the Sendai criteria were generally applied, and from 2012 to their revision in 2017, the Fukuoka guidelines were used. Just a reminder for the listeners, the Fukuoka guidelines uh, carry a few basic principles. First, you have to think about worrisome features versus high-risk stigmata. The high-risk stigmata mainly include the masses that you're concerned contain cancer. So those are ones with main ducts greater than 10 millimeters um, without another explaining factor like a main duct stone, cyst with an enhancing mural nodule that's greater than 5 millimeters, or something that's hard causing obstructive jaundice. Worrisome features include some more borderline criteria like a thicker enhancing wall or a wall with a solid component, one with a mural nodule that's smaller than 5 millimeters, a main duct that's enlarged but not quite to that um, 10 millimeter mark, so five to nine millimeters, um, or a duct with an abrupt change in caliber. There's some other things like growth. So if the cyst grows more than five millimeters over two years, if the patient has an elevated CA-99, or they have a history of acute pancreatitis, because again, you're thinking about that being a harder mass that's obstructing the duct. Thanks for going over that, Lexi. I always forget them and have to review them with a table next to me. 
Um, so in this study, patients were generally followed postoperatively with an MRI abdomen with cholangiopancreatography six months after diagnosis, and then every 12 months thereafter in the absence of any concerns for progression. Pathologic evaluation determined presence of high-grade dysplasia or invasive carcinoma, um, and both of these were considered malignant for the sake of the study. A binary logistic regression model was used to estimate the effect size of the association between considered risk factors and the development of pathologic outcomes. So the final study population consisted of 292 patients. Their median age was was 64 at age of diagnosis, and their median surveillance time was 37 months. Uh, About 40% of them had worrisome features at diagnosis, and 5.5% had high-risk stigmata at diagnosis. And over the course of surveillance, 9.2% of these patients developed a worrisome feature after five years, and 16.7% developed a high-risk stigmata. 55% of these patients underwent a Whipple procedure, and 38% underwent distal pancreatectomy. 14% of patients had severe post-operative complications, and that included one patient death. At the final pathologic evaluation, 36% of the patients had high-grade dysplasia or invasive cancer, and 5.5% of of IPMN had a concomitant pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. Patients developed high-risk stigmata from a previous worrisome feature had significantly higher rates of final malignant pathology compared to those without worrisome features. And developing an additional worrisome feature or alternatively developing high-risk stigmata from an existing worrisome feature was independently associated with high-grade dysplasia on final pathology. Only obstructive jaundice was related to an increased incident of an invasive component. And then these results were then validated in another cohort of patients who underwent 36 months of surveillance instead of 12 with no other differences identified. Okay, so those were the results of the study. Um, The authors did note several limitations. Um, Firstly, patients were only included if they had a pathologically confirmed branch duct IPMN. Um, So this therefore excludes those with a presumed branch duct IPMN by radiographic or other criteria who are undergoing surveillance. And then additionally, given the retrospective nature of the study, um, certain details that are important, such as mural nodule size or CA99 levels, weren't always available for all of the patients. So now that we've discussed the article, we wanted to move into the second part of the episode, which will be our interview with Dr. Marke Gianni. Dr. Marke Gianni is a surgeon within the Department of General and Pancreatic Surgery at the University of Verona in Italy. His research interests include exocrine and cystic neoplasms of the pancreas, and he has authored over 100 scientific articles to include the article we're discussing today. We're really excited to share this interview with you, and we hope you enjoy. Well, guys, first of all, I would like to congratulate you for the podcast. I am really a big fan of it. Maybe you you don't know, you have many supporters in Italy as well. I mean, it's great to have it on Spotify. Most of my residents actually love to hear, you know, your podcast. So big honor for me to be here. I appreciate yeah, that's it. fantastic. So first question to get us started, could you tell us about how the study was first conceptualized? So, um, to tell you how this study was uh, conceptualized, I have to uh, bring you a little bit uh, in Verona, where I work. Uh, So, we are a pancreas center. So, that means that we are fully devoted to the pancreas and, in particular, to our cyst clinic. So, it's specific for the study and, of course, the research on pancreatic cystic neoplasm, such as IPMN. 
So um, the story so far started uh, when uh, IPMN were firstly described, so back in the 80s. So, uh, of course, at the time, our knowledge about the biology of this entity was actually uh, scarce. And what we had at the time then, you know, after all in the 90s and early 2000 was, uh, well, data from surgical series. So um, the first knowledge was by just by operating on most, if not all, of this entity was that um, actually only a few of them were uh, truly malignant entities uh, to the point that we then learned that they encompass a broad spectrum from completely benign to borderline entity. And just few of them are truly malignant entities. And their biology was actually um, very different from that of uh, pancreatic cancer, pancreatic adenocarcinoma that we all know has a very dismal prognosis. So at that time, we moved from very liberal um, surgical policies to um, observation, to um, active surveillance uh, on most of the cysts. And we started to have then data, not just from surgical series, but also from observational uh, study that provided us with more insights on their biology. And that's where we learned that most of these cysts can be safely surveilled over the time. And so this study came so from the knowledge uh, from surgical series at the beginning, telling us, you know, that from the path reports, the actual uh, pathological diagnosis, plus the data from the observational series, telling us, as I said, that most of these cysts will never progress into true malignancy. And so this is basically, you know, where it all started. That's excellent. So this was kind of a, a meeting between those surgical studies and then the observational studies. This is kind of like a midpoint between those. Can Correct. you kind of describe your, your study design and how that thought process led to this design of this study? <laughs> so it basically came from, you know, reviewer number three, okay? So who's basically the guy rejecting your paper, either because it's a surgical series, so <laughs> it has a selection bias. So, okay, then we said, let, let's move to observational series. But then in this way, we were lacking, you know, data from pathology. So basically the question of reviewer number three was, are we truly looking at an IPMN? So because I was a little bit, you know, sick of, you know, all this uh, rejection, I'm kidding, of course, you know, I just wanted to combine the two things. So in, in this study, we, uh, of course, needed um, a surgical series because we needed to have a final uh, path diagnosis in terms of invasive cancer or high-grade dysplasia. But to be included in the series, we uh, only searched for those who underwent those patients who underwent observation before being selected for surgery. So in this way, we combined the data from observation to search for dynamic predictors of malignancy and then the data of our pathologists, because of course we were looking for predictors of either high-grade dysplasia or invasive cancer. So we, we basically call this study the crossover study because it's focused on those who switched from observation to surgery. And in this way, we uh, seek to um, define the value 
of these dynamic predictors by combining this data. Of course, it's a very selected cohort of individuals, but it's the only way to have both ways. So the, the, the knowledge from the observation plus the one from a surgical series. Right. Yeah, I, I think I think it, it really fills a, a gap in the knowledge that's been out there. I think you guys are really to be commended for doing it exactly that way, the crossover, as you described. One, one point I wanted to ask about is the there have been previous studies where high-grade dysplasia and invasive cancer are kind of combined. And they say like there was a, a malignant result on final pathology. Can you talk about that choice? I thought you guys did a nice job of putting it together and separating it. So, you know, I really think when I take a cyst to the operating room, I'm hoping for high-grade dysplasia, right? If you operated before high-grade dysplasia, you operated too early. If you operated for cancer, you operated too late. High-grade dysplasia is really kind of the, the money when it comes to these IPMNs. So can you talk about the choice of, of whether those have to be lumped together uh, or when you can and can't separate them? Absolutely, Timothy. Um, um, uh, that's a great question. Um, um, honestly, when we refer to malignant cysts, there is kind of, you know, the tendency to put them together. But in mm -hmm. fact, as you said, it makes a huge difference, you know, between these two anony as we, of course, particularly on those individuals uh, who are under active surveillance, seek for high-grade dysplasia as, as you said, if you are observing a cyst and then it turns out that it has already developed an invasive cancer, you might have the feeling of, you know, uh, being arrived too late because at that point, you know, invasive cancer is already there. You can have positive lymph nodes and you know that the prognosis then is actually way worse and the risk mm -hmm. of uh, having occurrence, you know, of the IPMN becomes relevant. So in this way, we wanted to uh, define these two different entities, even though we know that the biology is not truly the way we expect it to be. So we know that IPMN, like colon cancer, follow the adenoma to carcinoma sequence. But at the same time, we cannot really predict once we are observing a cyst, uh, uh, you know, when this cyst goes through the steps of um, being evolved from, from low-grade dysplasia to high-grade dysplasia to invasive cancer. We know that it's like way more difficult, you know, to, to define that. So the, probably uh, our goal, as you said, should be to find high-grade dysplasia, but still we're lacking reliable predictors for high-grade dysplasia. We're way better in defining predictors of invasive cancer, but as you said, this might be a little bit too late as the perfect goal for surgery should be, as you said, high-grade dysplasia. Yeah, just on that on that note, the kind of figure you guys have with the green to red and all the different kind of yeah. pathways, I love that figure. I think that's like, if you were going to just remember one picture from the paper, I think that's so good The kind of whether it came from nothing or progressed into worrisome, progressed into high risk. I mean, I think it, it really summarizes it well. I was, I was kind of surprised that uh, the patients with nothing, they still had a pretty significant rate of, you know, high-grade dysplasia malignancy. I think that, you know, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but that's the tough part here is that we can't look a patient in the eye yeah. and say, like, you have no risk. Um, and that's always the bugaboo for these. But but I really did like that figure. And I think for for readers, Thank it's you. a great figure to, to remember. Yeah. And that's... Yeah, that's we call it the, the traffic light. <laughs> I mean, that's what you're trying to do, right? You're, you're trying to move from static predictors in the Fukuoka guidelines 
to dynamic predictors over the course of, of surveilling a patient, right? Exactly. So we, we usually we, we use this metaphor with our Italian patient, uh, which is the, 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 the picture versus movie thing. So when we first look at an MRI or a CT scan, it's like facing a picture. So of course, this is telling us the truth, but this is something static. It's just valid now, here. What's going to happen in six months, one year, two years, we don't really know. So by adding picture after picture, we might be able to define what we call the movie of an IPMM. So also in terms of counseling, what we tell to our patient is, let's watch this movie together. We're not dealing with an adenocarcinoma, where it's actually a matter of like rushing because there is no time. You know, you have to define whether this patient needs chemo or upfront surgery. So with cysts, with most of them, I would say with the vast majority of them, we do have time to start watching this movie together. And if something changes, if there is no stability, which is, I would say, you know, one of the keywords in this story, then we might, you know, take different decisions like going for endoscopic ultrasound or, or repeating another MRI. Uh, at three months rather than in six months. But again, we have time to watch this movie together. I think this is a take-home message that we would like to provide to our readers. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. I'm going to definitely steal that, the picture versus <laughs> the movie. That's really good. Thank you. So on on looking at uh, you know the your major findings of the study, can you can you review some of those for for the the listenership? Uh, what what do you think were some of the major takeaways from the study? Yeah, so uh, I would say that the major takeaway, if I have to explain the study to my mom, who is actually very interested in what I do, but I have to, you know, let her understand what I'm talking about as she's not a doctor, is basically, I mean, we have to worry whenever is something is changing, you know, in this movie that we were referring to. So stability is really something that is reassuring us because one of the major findings is that it's not that bad, I would say, to have a worrisome feature on an IPMN, for example, which is stable over time, rather than having something which is going on, you know, observation after observation. So I would say that the major finding is that to harboring a stable feature is not as bad as having these features coming out control after control. So... That's basically the, the, the take-home message of this traffic light. If you look at figure one, uh, you know, the worst case scenario is when something which was stable becomes actually, you know, um, it, it comes out with some additional worrisome feature or even worse with high-risk stigmata. And then the relative risk of having either high-grade dysplasia or invasive cancer, you know, is actually going up. And, and those are basically our surgical candidates. So the major take-home message is whenever you watch this movie, look for either stable features or for something that is developing, you know, uh, uh, control after control. So in this way, we're also able to define, I would say, a new knowledge on worrisome feature or high-risk stigmata that according to the guidelines are different, but probably they are. Uh, I would say not not all worrisome features I would say are the same, but because we know that, for example, size 
has been questioned as a true worrisome feature. This paper adds also the knowledge of either static or, uh, um, or dynamic horizontal features. So it's not truly important to harbor one or two or, through, or three features. It actually matters more to have it stable versus adding up horizontal features over time. And this is something that is really not clear in the current guidelines. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, I think that's a great summary that, uh, you know, so just kind of talk us through you see a patient for the first time and they have high-risk stigmata, you're treating your your mindset there and then <clears throat> worrisome features. And can you talk through your algorithm of how closely you're going to surveil, surveil those two patients? Uh, is it different? Is it the same? How do you, how, how many pictures do you want in that movie, so to speak, over the next six months to a year? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I mean, I'm, I, I, of course, I'm not going to say that I'm, I, I would liberally follow up a patient with high-risk stigmata. So we, we, we really, you know, understand the value of finding a patient with, for example, jaundice or whenever cytology comes back positive. I mean, we consider that as a major indication for surgery. So, of course, we don't have a cyst in front of us. We have a patient. So after assessing, you know, the, 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 you know, the, as the patient, whether a patient is not a surgical candidate, we consider that as a major indication for surgery. But for example, let's focus on the dilation of the main pancreatic duct, for example, which is defined whenever it's above a centimeter as a high-risk stigmata. Are we really sure that we are watching at the main duct IPMN? Can we exclude at first observation that this is not chronic pancreatitis or just a dilation of the duct due to something else. So what I'm mm -hmm. gonna say is that once again, not all the features are the same. And once again, if we see a duct which is enlarging without any mass, then I would definitely put more attention into this case and consider this as a surgical candidate rather than having a duct which is up to a centimeter, but it was the same one year ago, mm -hmm. two years ago, three years ago. So then, it also impacts on the counseling on our patient. So what is the feeling of this patient? Is, 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 is he or she reluctant in having a surgery or maybe proactive because also the psychological burden or, of, of harboring such a cyst is impacting on the quality of life? Mm -hmm. This is also, I think, very relevant when we deal with, with, with these individuals that we follow every every year, every 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 six months. So we got to know each other, and and, and so it really matters also, you know, the, the way they 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 follow our advice, and 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 also their fears, their expectations in surgery. Also because we're facing pancreatic surgery, and I think this is really yeah. relevant. Yeah. Just curious, what do you think about? I mean, I know the numbers were low, but the patients with no worrisome features, there was still 27% high-grade dysplasia yeah. and cancer. Do you share that number with your patient? Or do you think that that would just like cause a lot of worry that's unnecessary? Exactly. No, no, no. I was very worried about this number. Uh, still, it's a surgical series. So those numbers are biased because right, right. For, for some given reason, the surgeon decided to, you know, to, to, to perform the surgery. So those are not the real number. This is not the risk. This is just, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is just, you know, the, the ratio of those patients harboring malignancy, but for a given reason, the surgeon decided to go for surgery. So that's the reason why we had this number and we chose to publish the relative risk. So yeah. 
having a, a stable reason, uh, sorry, a stable uh, lesion is actually mm-hmm. less worrying than having a, a, lesion, a lesion in progression. Yeah. So don't look at the, at the raw data, but just the relative risk. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. One more factor uh, I'm curious about is your counseling different for left versus right? You know, if we're talking mm-hmm. about a distal versus a Whipple, how does that change your your counseling, your decision points? Well, 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 when we scale the pros and cons of uh, undergoing a surgery, we have to be very clear also in terms of risk of mobility and mortality. So, I mean, of course, whenever a Whipple is there, well, first of all, we, we, we have to keep in mind that the planned surgery might change because we always want to assess the frozen section here. We're talking about IPMN, right? So we want to exclude that we have a positive margin in terms of high-grade dysplasia or even worse, uh, invasive cancer. We also have now spyglass, pancreatoscopy. So the surgery itself can be very challenging. Uh, We're now shifting from being more aggressive. Back in the day, we used to perform way more total pancreatectomy for main duct IPMN. Now we try to define where the bulk of the IPMN is and try to do a partial resection by uh, and then analyzing you know what, what what's left to see whether we have to actually extend our surgery or 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 if we can be more conservative but of course for a patient it makes a big difference to undergo a Whipple or or a distal as you were mentioning uh, but again i mean to to say that a patient needs a distal pancreatectomy still it's a pancreatectomy so the risk yeah. of diabetes is relevant we know that fistula after distal pancreatectomy can be as high as 30-40%. And, and so this is, again, very relevant also by impacting the quality of life of the patient. So once again, we are very cautious and, and also our policy towards resections for IPMN is to super select our candidates, definitely more than back in the day. No, that's great. Thank you for explaining that. Um, looking looking forward, um, how would you, in your opinion, how do these findings um, play into future uh, examination or revisions of the Fukuoka guidelines? Um, is this something that can be incorporated? And if so, um, how how would that be done uh, from a practical standpoint? So that's, again, another great question, because, I mean, I, I love guidelines. Uh, I mean, so my disclosure is that I, I, I am part of the international guidelines on, on IPMN. I'm part of the panel. So, uh, I, I, of course, I'm not here to, to blame the guidelines. We need the guidelines, actually, because, you know, as, as vaccines, as vaccination, they protect the, the population and they also helps in, I would say, 
um, uh, diminishing you know, disparities between high volume centers and low volume centers. So we need guidelines. But of course, guidelines are, are not the Holy Bible. And for IPMN, they rely on a very low level of evidence because that's what we have on IPMN. There is not a single randomized controlled trial so far on IPMN. Probably there will never be randomized controlled trial on some aspect of IPMN or pancreatic neoplasm. Truth is that most of the guidelines rely on surgical series. And surgical series, we know that they are biased basically by definition. Uh, so they basically rely on surgical series and expert opinion. So what is great, I think, about the current guidelines is that they provide you an easy way to, um, to, to, um, to triage your patient at first observation, okay? So if no features are present, you know you will never operate on this patient. You, 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 you will surveil this patient. If you have a worrisome feature, better go for endoscopic ultrasound possibly with FNA if there is a target. High-risk stigmata means basically a surgical candidate. So nice and easy. What happens then, it's actually less explored. So this paper uh, highlights uh, how far we are in defining what's the best treatment for our patient over time. So once again, what is the value of a dynamic evaluation? Guidelines do not tell us what to do uh, dynamically, so meaning over time, because there is a lack of knowledge, of course. And then there is also another factor, which is, uh, are we really sure that guidelines are followed in the clinical practice? Probably not because they're not known by clinician, but also because sometimes it's hard to follow the guidelines. I mean, some part of the algorithm of the international guidelines is actually even difficult to 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 understand, and basically, it really relies a lot on endoscopic ultrasound in repeating endoscopic ultrasound, which is uh, very expensive and also very difficult from the patient, you know, to accept. So we we, we even define an app, uh, which is called iSyst. You can download it for free in either on on the Apple Store or on Android, and and it's it's also very cool because it provides you not just the international guidelines but also the AGA guidelines on pancreatic neoplasm and the European guidelines. And sometimes it turns out that even guidelines themselves, they provide with different indications for the same cyst, for the same patient. So how difficult it is also for us to take decisions based on guidelines, if there is discrepancy even between the guidelines themselves. So uh, honestly, the future uh, will, will not rely on uh, different guidelines, but on a single guideline. Uh, I am aware that next year uh, there will be a new release of the international guidelines. And I really hope that studies like this and other observational series more focused on the biology of this entity will provide policies and new policies. Still, what we have is a patient in front of us and the guidelines that we have. So still is very difficult to take decision and to share these decisions with our patient. Honestly, it, it takes a lot of time. So to do a CIS clinic, it's really time consuming, but I would say that it's the best time to be invested with our patient. Speaking of uh, challenges, this, <clears throat> this crossover study included six high volume centers. What, uh, what challenges did you encounter 
in conducting the study? Yeah, I mean, we definitely need multicentric study, right? To 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 have you know that the, the population of this study. Uh, the, the, I I don't think there is a single center, uh, you know, being able to to accrue such such numbers. I also uh, think that the value of multicentric study is also uh, minimizing the bias of having population either from Europe or the U.S. We also have studies from the from from Asia, which I think add a lot of value. So it was difficult, first of all, you know, to have, you know, reliable data, because as I said, it's a surgical series, so biased by definition. And also when we had to define exactly what happened at different time points, we turned, it turned out that we had many, you know, a lot of missing data. So we had to be very selective only on those cases, having data at each time point to define what happened, you know, time point after time point. So the ideal study would have been a prospective one where, you know, all data are, are taken rigorously. Of course, all the participating institution had prospectively maintained database, but of course we know that still being a surgical series, you know, we, we had all the bias of a, of a retrospective study. Well, I think uh, two questions. Um, you hinted at some new guidelines. Can you give us a preview? Are they going to, are the new guidelines, do you think they'll have anything about dynamic changes in this, in the cyst? Do you think that that's the, you know, the next logical step? Like you said, I think the current guidelines are great for the first time you meet the patient, but they don't speak a lot about the next step. So do you think that the international guidelines will get there? Were you pounding your fist at the last table that that should, or at the last meeting that that should happen or? To my knowledge, uh, because the discussion is still ongoing, because, of course, it's a huge work of reviewing all the literature, you know, for the update of the guideline, um, uh, we, we won't have probably this new concept of either static or dynamic feature. Probably some of the worries on feature will be downgraded. So mm. like size, as I said, or also the concept of lymphadenopathy, which really doesn't make much sense. Uh, I think that um, not just this paper, but other paper are adding value uh, to the knowledge that if something is changing, like growth rate, so mm -hmm. rather than just size, rate will, will, will be enhanced as, as a factor triggering at least endoscopic ultrasound or second level diagnostic, if not surgery itself. But uh, honestly, I think that most of the novelty will be regarding follow-up. So uh, not just selecting the right patient for surgery, but also what to do with all those individuals that so far are just, you know, without end, follow-up until surgically fit. That's what the guidelines are saying. And that's a huge, huge, huge topic because it, it, it's, of course, not sustainable what we're doing right now. So what we're doing right now comes from a lack of knowledge, which is basically, well, follow up all those cysts until the patient remains surgically fit. Doesn't make much sense, right? So there is no other pathology in the GI world that is followed up for just, you know, who knows how long. And it's also tough for the patient, you know, to accept that. And uh, so I think this will be one of the major breakthroughs defining targets, not just for surgery, but on the other side of the spectrum, who might be candidate for follow-up discontinuation. 
So honestly mm-hmm. speaking, when I was in the US in 2013-14, the AGA guidelines came out with the world-known um, guidelines that were, I would say, very provocative because, well, they were basically drafted by gastroenterologists telling us as surgeons, hey, there is no, it's not just about IPMN, okay? We also have other stuff, you know, to, to deal with. And for the first time, follow-up discontinuation was proposed. And this exploded as a bomb in our community because we know that some IPMN will progress to cancer, not just after five years, but even after 10, 15 years. So of course, we don't want you know, to, 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 to risk to lose the chance for a cure for an IPMN eventually evolving into a cancer. Still, what we're doing right now is not sustainable. So there is indeed a subset of small IPMN, we call them trivial in Verona, that will never progress into cancer, or at least that do not harbor a risk higher than the age-matched general population. I think that this is, I would say, the way we should look at things. So risk zero does not exist. It will never exist in in, in life, probably, not just in, in the world of IPMN or in medicine. So just because we all have a pancreas, of course, (laughs) the risk will never be zero. So whenever we're able to catch a subset of cysts not harboring a risk higher than uh, the general population of the the same sex, the same year, then we probably find those individuals who might be candidate for follow-up discontinuation safely, of course, after a certain time, in which we assess whether the cyst is stable or not. So once again, the stability, the concept of stability remains key. But I think that this will be the major advancement in the new guidelines, because as I said, for for healthcare system, this is putting really too much pressure right now in terms of cost, but also in terms of psychological burden for for all those individuals who've been follow-up for now for years for their cyst. Can you give us your criteria for the patients that have uh, that you stop watching? Yeah, I mean, a- again, I mean, uh, we, we, we still don't have this 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 level of evidence yeah, you know, to yeah. to recommend follow up discontinuation. So I would say that to date, the only true uh, candidates are either you know patients above the, the age of eighty or or those that you know because of comorbidities will never make it you know, yeah. to, to okay. a, a pancreatic resection. Okay. Still, I can anticipate you that those cysts not developing any worrisome feature nor high-risk stigmata for at least five years of observation. So we keep five years also because, you know, it has been mentioned by the AJ guidelines and it's easy to remember, all in follow-up. But if those individuals do not experience any progression of the cyst, and they are now, after five years, above the threshold of 75, we mm. now are you know, starting to stop surveillance. Okay. And this will be a great goal because we already made a calculation that this would save billions in terms mm. of CT scan and MRI for our healthcare system because we know that the risk of pancreatic cancer is age-related. So the, the risk itself for a 75-year-old individual is actually high. I would say relatively high, and, and it's not dependent on the cyst, but because of the age of the patient. 
So mm-hmm. that this, this, this is basically our philosophical view on, on the potential for lapis continuation. Even though we all know that in the future, uh, biomarkers, reliable biomarkers mm-hmm. should drive mm-hmm. our decision. But, you know, it, it's always, you know, the last slide of, of the presentation in the future, you know, seeking for reliable biomarkers. I also want to have answers now for my <laughs> clinic tomorrow. And what we have tomorrow is a patient in front of me, an MRI, a CT scan, and we need to take you know our decision based on that, and yeah. and and so I think that's the best that we can do right now. Yeah, I don't know that we have time to go into biomarkers, but I would be very curious about that as well. Your thoughts, but I guess the, the other question I had was, what's kind of the next big project coming out of the Verona Clinic? What what paper should we keep an eye out for? What do you guys kind of what's at the front of your mind as far as what you're looking at in your data now? Well, well my choice would be uh, on this concept of trivial IPMN. Okay. So, I mean, I mean, the, 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 now the most of our uh, energies are into defining this target for follow-up discontinuation. Yeah. Uh, again, it will be a multi-centric um, effort uh, and hopefully it will be, you know, out soon. Uh, again, we feel the urge now to identify uh, target for for follow-up discontinuation yeah. uh, but also we have many uh, translational uh, products you know again seeking for novel new biomarkers in the blood in the cis fluid uh, but the problem is with, with this biomarker they have to be both uh, reliable and all but also cheap to be used in a clinical mm-hmm. practice so that, that, that that's a that, that's a major issue there are several publications out there great results biosignature but still the reason why those techniques are not incorporated in the clinical practice to date is because they are either very expensive or not validated on external cohort. So that, 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 that's a major issue right now. So once again, so far from the clinical standpoint, our efforts are now uh, in, in defining not just the true surgical candidates based on the biology of the disease, which is the most important factor, but also who are the potential candidates for innovation? And what, just kind of a philosophical question, what kind of follow-up, like if you want to look at 300 patients, what's your follow-up cutoff point going to be where you say, okay, we have enough patients to really answer this question. Do you need 10 years, 15 years? You know, I, you know, you have five-year data, I'm sure, but do you have 15-year data on 300 patients? You know what I'm, uh, what I'm trying to get at? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, even though it's impossible, to, you know, to have a, like a right. sort, of, sort of a power calculation. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I would roughly say that once the medium follow-up is uh, uh, longer than five years, then okay. we can start having some answers. Also, because you know, some 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 great papers out there. Uh, you know, uh, they they just have just a short follow up, and while we know that the biology of this disease yeah. is very long, so without a, a medium follow up of at least five years, we 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 are absolutely blind. You know, our Kaplan Myers right. will, will will never you know uh, be able yeah. to to answer to these questions. We have to tackle not just the um the the evolution of a cyst into an invasive IPMN. We also have the entity called concomitant pancreatic cancer, which again mix up our data. Because we know that the risk is not just the one depending on the cyst itself, but it's also the risk of harboring a cancer far away from the IPMN. And probably one of the factors that you know puts a lot of fog you know, in our data is the fact that in some cases we have 
an actual pancreatic cancer, which develops far away from the cyst. But indeed, in you know, in in the database, it comes out to have a malignancy. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. again, only the biology will unravel the you know the the question. It's really intriguing as a as a as a research field, I would say. So <clears throat> to round things out, what do you think uh, is the major takeaway message for, say, the general surgery trainees? Yeah. So first of all, take your time. Take your time because here, and this has to be clearly uh, said to the patient, we are not facing an actual pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma. Here, we are dealing with pancreatic cystic neoplasm. So keep in mind, the vast majority of them will never need, will never require surgery. Take your time to study the situation, get your scans. If you have any doubt, if you have features like the warzone features, well, ask your endoscopist who's your best friend to do an endoscopic ultrasound and then take your time to watch the movie with your What do I mean with that? I mean that by adding MRI, after MRI, CD scan, after CD scan, you can safely watch this movie with your patient and be ready to change your decision. Or share with your patient what you know, but also what you don't know. Because indeed, you don't know what's going to happen in one year, two years, or five years, but get your popcorn in a metaphoric way and watch this movie with your patient because there is no hurry. Only a, a minority of this is will require surgery. And so this is, I would say, the philosophical, uh, you know, concept of the study, but also of the management of IPMF. All right. So with that, that concludes our episode today and our interview with Dr. Marchegiani. A huge thank you again to Dr. Marchegiani for his time, his expertise, and flexibility as we navigated multiple time zones to schedule this interview. Thank you to the BTK audience for sticking with us throughout our deep dive into IPMNs over the last two episodes. It can be a confusing topic, but hopefully we've broken it down for everyone while also sharing the varied shades of gray and management of these patients, as well as the groundbreaking research that's currently being done on the topic. We hope you enjoyed the episode and learned a lot, and have a great day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.